0: I'd like for you to think about as we begin our study this morning what you believe your greatest problem is. What is your greatest problem? What is your greatest need? As you think about that, as was just read for us in Mark chapter 2, we we open a new scene that the Gospel of Mark has for us. And Mark chapter 2 and Mark chapter 3 now presents a series of challenges against Jesus. It is a picture of kingdoms that are in conflict. As now Christ has come and He is establishing His kingship and declaring the kingdom of God, we are now going to see in chapter 2 and chapter 3 resistance all around. All kinds of stories Mark will now record for us of how there is this growing resistance about what Jesus is teaching, what Jesus is accomplishing. As chapter 2 then of Mark opens, we see Jesus has returned to Capernaum after he's been traveling through the region of Galilee, he's been teaching the kingdom of God, he has been healing as he has gone, and it says he's in a home, he's in his home, and we're not sure exactly what that means, Uh, if he's in his home or if he's in one of the apostles' homes and has made this his home base for the time while he's in Capernaum, either way you'll notice that those story tells us that word gets out that Jesus is there. And the emphasis of this story is really about the crushing crowds. There are so many people from Galilee who have now come to Capernaum and they are there for Jesus. They have Filled the house completely full. In fact, we're told that it is so full that verse two, there's not even room at the door. So the you know, the door's hanging open and there's people piling in. And notice there's a singular reason why they are there. Verse two says, He's preaching the word to them. Jesus has come to proclaim the message. That's a key theme that Mark highlights over and over again. Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And so people from all over the region are piled into this home. You can see them just kind of hanging outside everywhere and they're trying to listen as Jesus is teaching. And then the story moves in verse three or verse, yeah, verse three that we have now. There are these four men. And they have a paralyzed friend. And they have brought him on a stretcher mat style kind of bed. And they have come to see Jesus. And you can imagine as the four of them are carrying each side of this stretcher with the paralyzed man on it. As they come to the door of the house and to see just the bodies of people all over the place. And it says there that it's impossible in verse 4 for them to get near Him because of the crowd. Have you ever been in a crowd like that? I think every time I go to Disney World, I'm in a crowd like that. Right before the gates open, it is just wall-to-wall bodies. And if somebody were to say, excuse me, can I get up there? You'd be like, I've got nowhere to go. I'd love to let you by, but... Uh, I can't barely breathe right now because we're all jammed up against each other in this place. And that's where we're at right here. Is Here we come in and we bring this man lying on this stretcher. Uh, can we get in to see Jesus? Where do you think we're going to move that you're going to be able to pull that into here? This house is stuffed full of people. And I want you to notice that these people do not give up. This paralyzed man doesn't give up. The four friends do not give up. We're told there in verse four they remove the roof above him and they make an opening and let him down in that opening. Now, it's important that we get a little bit of background on that. Their roofs are not like our roofs. Okay, so this does not require a shovel, jackhammer, and all kinds, you know—saws all and all that kind of stuff to be able to do this. Most of the houses in Galilee in the first century had a staircase that was adjacent to the house. reason why is in the cool of the evening, that was a great place to be to try to cool down, have a breeze. You'd sit on top of your roof. That harkens all the way back like David and being on rooftops. This is what you did. You sat on the roof. And so what they do is they take him up the staircase up to the roof. But those roofs had large wood beams and then smaller branches and smaller beams to hold various kinds of mud and thatch work and things like that. And then there'd be some tiling that would be put over it. And so the removal of the roof is not maybe as industrious as we might think about or even this picture you know, of just blowing a hole in the roof and how difficult that would be. It'd been fairly easy for them to do this. But I want you to visualize that scene for a moment. There are bodies, shoulder to shoulder, jammed into this house. Jesus is teaching them, and then all of a sudden, here comes some mud and some branches starting to fall down, and light begins to appear slowly, and you're starting to see faces, and you can just imagine, everybody's looking up there as these guys are starting to pull a hole, bigger and bigger and bigger... Until finally, all of a sudden, you're watching, and here comes this man's body on a stretcher being lowered down into the scrap. I think everybody stopped and watched that. (laughs) You know, it's not like you preach through that. If we've sort of had a hole in a roof and a guy comes down, I'm stopping the sermon. I mean, you're gonna look at that and go, What is going on? And so everybody's looking at this. Here is this this amazing scene as this man is being lowered down. And notice what we see here in verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven. Are you surprised by that statement? I think that would have shocked the room. Here is this paralyzed man. What should have Jesus said? You can rise and walk. (laughs) We're like, okay, we're we're waiting for this this healing. You know, Jesus has been going around and He's healing the sick. He's healing the disease. We saw the leprous one be cleansed. We've seen Mark recording all these miracles. The end of chapter 1 tells us that people from all over the region are coming for healing and listening to His preaching diseases. And now, here is this paralyzed man lowered in front of Jesus. And the words that come out of Jesus are, your sins are forgiven. And that's why you even have the scribes here go, what did he just say? And they start questioning in verse 6. Yeah, verse 6. Some of the scribes who were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The essence of the conflict. Who does this guy think he is? How could you say that? They're perfectly fine. If Jesus would have said, rise up and walk, no problem. Story rolls right on. Great rejoicing. Everybody's happy. And they lived happily ever after. There'd be nothing else to it. But Jesus does something staggering here and he makes a challenging statement. Your sins are forgiven. And the scribes turn and look at each other. You can just imagine. They're not saying anything. Since they question their hearts. So you, you can just kind of read it in their eyeballs while they're looking. At, did he just say what I think he said? No, he just, he did say that. Who does he think he is? Nobody can do that. Who can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. What did he just say? He didn't get him out of here. He's blasphemy. It's just, you can imagine that scene. And notice what the text tells us in verse 8. Immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. Jesus is going to use this opportunity to truly explain and display who He is. He puts it forward by saying, son, your sins are forgiven. And they now ask the question, well, who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. It's a reason why Jesus did it this way is He wants them to understand who He is. That's right. Only God can forgive sins. So that says a lot for Jesus to say these words. He's not blaspheming, but He says, I've got the power to do that. He's going to express that as He goes in teaching this but notice there is more to this to help them understand that He is God. They're questioning in their hearts. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Why does He talk like that? And notice what happens there when it says in verse 8 that He questioned among, that they, He perceived in His Spirit that they questioned within themselves. And He said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? You know, sometimes we'll do that when we're talking. We'll be like, well, I was thinking the exact same thing you were thinking. And that's not what this is. Notice Jesus knows that they are challenging him in their hearts. He can't do that. No one can forgive sins but God alone. And I would like for you to imagine for a moment if you had an individual like that, and here you are in your heart, you're not saying the words. You're just thinking it. Who is this guy? Why does he talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that individual turns to you and says, Why are you questioning me in your heart? <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> How do you know that? <laughs> Very powerful what Jesus does right there to validate the idea of I can forgive sins. Here He shows this divine knowledge of knowing exactly what is happening in their hearts because what Jesus wants to communicate, it is a picture that was given to us a little bit in chapter 1 and is now coming powerfully into chapter 2. Jesus has not come to be a miracle worker. He's not interested in everybody going wow, Jesus can do some really neat stuff and so look how he heals these people. If that was the goal then he didn't have to do all this. He could have just said rise, get up and walk. No controversy, no challenging, no problems. everybody's fine with that. We love this guy. he's healing us. it would have been great rejoicing. but that's not why he's here. His purpose is not to just simply be a miracle worker. His purpose is to be the Savior of the world. He has come to be their King. He is their Lord. And He wants them to understand that. That's what He is communicating in these words by saying, Your sins are forgiven. You need to move me up a level. That I'm not here just to heal you physically. I'm not here for your physical desires or physical needs. I've come to rescue. I've come to save. And that is being expressed as he teaches these words. And if that wasn't big enough, notice Jesus pushes it even Further, when he says there in verse 9, Now, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now listen, focus probably too much on verse 9 and not verse 10. Verse 10, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He now turns and says to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your bed and walk. (laughs) Notice this is the first time in Mark's Gospel that we get this designation. Notice that Jesus does not say that you may know that I have the... He doesn't say I. First time He uses the term. That you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Where does this come from? It is fascinating to me that you think about all of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the way down to Malachi. There is only one location where you have Son of Man using a prophetic title as a reference to a particular individual who is going to arrive and do something in the future. Daniel 7 and verse 13 is where it's found. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And He came to the ancients of days and was presented before Him. And to Him was given dominion and glory And a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus goes three layers on them. First, He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Second, he goes, I know you're questioning me in your heart. Why are you doing that? Third, so that you know that the Son of Man, the Son of Man, bing, <laughs> that's a prophetic term. That's only used one time here in Daniel 7. And notice what is tied to the arrival of the Son of Man. When the Son of Man comes, what is going to happen? He's given dominion, glory, glory kingdom that's not going to pass away so that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. What has been the message of Jesus in Mark's gospel? What's he going around proclaiming? Mark one fourteen fifteen, 15, the good news of the kingdom of God. And now he grabs this term and says, that's me. I am the one who possesses this authority. I am the one that possesses this rule. I'm the one that possesses this glory. I'm the one that's possessing this kingdom so that all nations and languages should serve me. And notice that's what he says in verse 10. So that you may know that the Son of Man has what? Authority on earth. That's what Daniel's talking about. The Son of Man is going to come and He's going to be given dominion, rule, a power, glory, kingdom so that everybody will serve. He will have all authority. How will the Gospels end? He'll have all authority on heaven and earth and all peoples are going to serve Him. And here's Jesus communicating this very picture of I have come with My rule, with My authority, with My kingdom that is not going to be destroyed. And now after declaring to them, now do you understand who I am? Let me prove what I just said. And he turns to that paralyzed man. Take up your mat and walk. And notice verse 12. He rose and immediately picked up his bed. And went out before them all. Now I just want you to see that. We have people wall to wall crammed in the house, right? And Jesus tells him, pick up your mat and go home. That guy stands up, picks it up, and starts moving people out of the way to get out that door. Jaws had to be just... What just happened? What did we just hear? Verse 12, so that they were all amazed... And glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. What has just happened? It's a staggering scene that is being put forward. And notice that Mark highlights something again. It's with the very words of Jesus. The authority of Jesus is bound in His words that all that Jesus has to say is get up and go home and there He goes. If you're like me, I always think about, and so what happened to the four guys on the roof? As as, as he walks off, they start putting the roof back together. (laughs) I don't know. This is how my mind works. (laughs) It's just this show-stopping scene that just causes everybody, what just happened here? And I want you to see the message, and then we'll talk about what this means for us. The message here is that what this story holds for us are keys to Jesus revealing what he's come to do. That Mark's gospel we've talked about is highlighting the keys of Isaiah. Isaiah has prophesied about this Messiah who's going to bring a new exodus and bring in a new kingdom. And Isaiah describes the events that are going to surround that. And Mark keys into that at the very beginning of the Gospel by quoting Isaiah, this is the good news of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, as written by Isaiah the prophet. So whatever Isaiah said, I'm going to show it to you is what Mark is telling us. And this miracle shows that very thing. Listen to Isaiah 35 in one description of what's going to happen when the kingdom arrives. Isaiah 35, verse 3, "...Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not." Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with a recompense of God. He will come and save you. Now what will happen? Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and then the lame man leap like deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. When Isaiah says, He will come and save you, what's going to happen when He comes to save The eyes will be opened, the ears will be unplugged, the lame will walk, and the mute will speak and sing. So this is what you're seeing in this dynamic here of Jesus tying together forgiveness of sins and salvation with this miracle. This is why Jesus, when presented with the lame man, doesn't just go, get up, doesn't that show show you that I'm God because I healed Him? He goes further than that and says, I'm whom Isaiah was talking about. I'm not just a miracle worker, but I am God who has come to save. Isaiah does it again. In Isaiah chapter 33 and verse 32. Here is a scene where Israel is under condemnation. And so you're listening to the words of condemnation, yet the reversal that will happen. Isaiah thirty-three twenty-two: For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our King. He will save us. But your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place or keep the sails spread out. So notice that's how bad it is right now. The mast isn't standing. It's broken down. But then prey and spoil in abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven of their iniquity. Notice how Isaiah crosses them together again. When healing comes is when forgiveness of sins comes. When you see the lame walk, that's when you know forgiveness of sins has arrived. And this is why Jesus says, I can just reverse that. Here is this lame man. Your sins are forgiven. Take up your bed and walk. What's the difference? I can do either because I am what Isaiah was talking about. I am that fulfillment. Because the lame walk, forgiveness of sins has arrived. And if forgiveness of sins has arrived, I can make the lame walk. Which is easier to say. I've come because that's what the healings represent. We've seen that in Mark's Gospel. When Jesus is casting out unclean spirits, when He's healing the sick, when He's healing the lame, when He's performing these miracles, these are not things that you sit back and go, oh, wow, that's really neat. I guess He's special because He does miracles. What you're supposed to do is go... This must be what who Isaiah spoke of. This is God who has come to save because Isaiah said when those healings and those things are happening that are saving the sick and healing the lame and the blind and all that, that tells you God has come to save. God has come to rescue. And I love how Isaiah puts it, there will be no inhabitant anymore that will say, I'm sick. Here is the lame who are taking the prey as well. Why? Because your sins are forgiven because your sins are forgiven. And so Jesus' words have the authority to heal and to forgive. Now, what does this all mean for us? I want to draw your attention back to chapter 5. Sorry, verse 5 of chapter 2. Back to verse 5. Jesus says something here by saying, Your sins are forgiven. That would have just been so rattling to everybody. Because if you have seen the trouble, here you are in the house, put yourself back in the house, and you've seen the roof get undone, these four men now lower this man down. And you're in that moment, and you thought to yourself, what is that man's greatest need that lies on that mat? I think we'd all say His greatest need is to walk. His greatest need, His greatest problem that He has is clearly that He is lame, that He's paralyzed, that He can't walk. And I want you to see something, that Jesus is doing something extraordinary by moving past what we would perceive to be the clear and obvious need. That's what we do. We come before God and go, here are all my problems. And I asked you at the very beginning, what did you say was your greatest problem? What is your greatest need? And I want you to see that Jesus bypasses what appears to be the most obvious central need of this paralyzed man. And actually tells him what he really needs. Because that's what Jesus has come to do is solve our greatest problem. So often what we do is we focus on all the things that we believe to be our greatest problems, our greatest needs, so much so that we completely forget what really our greatest need is. We have all of these sufferings and trials and pains and difficulties and problems and we think these are our greatest issues. In our world today, I think if you took a poll of what is our greatest needs if you wanted to make it political or social or whatever, you know, what do we need? Well, we need comfort and we need health and we need security, we need wealth and we need social justice, we need all these kinds of things. And what we fail to see is ultimately what our greatest problem is. And this is what I love that you see in this event is that Jesus is able to cut through all of those things. That everybody would step back and say, clearly the thing you need to do for this man is to heal him because he is lame and he cannot walk. And Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. Do you know what this man needs? Here's what he needs Son, your sins are forgiven. And if it wasn't for the questioning of the hearts of the scribes, that might have just been the end of the deal right there. Because that's what he needed. That's what he needed most. This paralyzed man's greatest need was not the need to walk. His greatest need was to have a Savior come and to have his sins forgiven. Our comfort is not our greatest need. Our security, our wealth, our health, these things are not our greatest need. What we so often do in our lives is we focus so easily on all the wrong things. We need to focus on what truly is our greatest hurt and what truly is our greatest need. What truly is our issue And our greatest issue is truly what we have done before God. This is the thing that we easily forget every day, at every moment. Is that we forget that what Jesus has come to do is to solve the sin problem, and we are to seek Him for that to be fulfilled. That's what He came to do. We talked a little bit in our Bible class out here in the auditorium. Everybody wants to make God the God who solves all my little small things and completely miss the big thing that He solved. You know, well, I've got this little crisis. Yeah, but did you forget what your greatest need is? Our greatest need... Every single individual in this room. Our greatest need today is that our sins be forgiven today. That is our greatest need. There you have no greater need and you have no greater problem than your sins to be forgiven today. And let me tell you, you have a big problem tomorrow. And your biggest problem and your biggest need tomorrow is to continue to have your sins forgiven tomorrow too. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And this is why God's supposed to be glorified, is that He sends Jesus so that every day that gets solved. Every day that gets solved, because I'm not going to presume that you're forgiven today, and you are never going to sin again the rest of your life, right? You're good to go. Well, not me. Not me. You know, we're close. I need that forgiveness tomorrow, and I'm going to need it on Tuesday. Yeah, I'm going to need it on Wednesday too. I'm going to be honest here. It's a safe place, right? I'm going to need it Thursday. I'm going to need it Thursday and Friday and every single day that I breathe. My greatest problem is always going to be me and God and how I break his will. I do not do what he says. I do not live up to his glory. I do not glorify him as I ought. I do not love my neighbor as myself. I do not love the Lord my God with all of my heart. I fail, I fail, I fail. And the greatest need that we need from Jesus every minute, every hour of every day is son or daughter, your sins are forgiven. That is the message we need. And that is what Jesus has come to solve. There is nothing more important in your life than that. Absolutely nothing more important in your life than that. That is the big deal before us, is that eternity is at stake. The things that we are enduring in this life, they are painful, and I do not set them aside for a moment. Your childhood, your background, your pains, your suffering, your loss, they are real, they are painful, they are awful. I've got my stories, you do too. But that doesn't mean that our greatest problem is still not where we stand before God and that we focus on what a grace we have been given in Christ Jesus in the midst of all the difficulties to never lose sight of the biggest deal we have is the sin problem. And it is amazing that Jesus has come and he cuts through the clutter in this scene and says, do you understand what I've come to do? I'm not here just to make you comfortable. I'm not here to make you wealthy and healthy. I'm not here to make you feel good. I'm here to forgive your sins. This is everything that we need. And that's why we praise him. And let me just end by saying, don't be distracted by the worldly concerns then. Don't let the affairs of the world cause you and I to forget our greatest need and why we need to seek Jesus passionately every single day. Because I need the mercy and grace just as much today as I did 20 some years ago, as I did 30 some years ago, as I will in 10 more years, in 20 more years, I need it just as much today and tomorrow and going forward. Don't forget that Jesus has solved your greatest problem. And let that change how you live your life. Let that help you through the difficulties of life. As we end, some of us we think about I always think about the Apostle Paul. Here he he'll say, you know, the these present trials and these the these these difficulties are nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory. How do you say things like that? Except you're focused on the spiritual need and the spiritual problem is my always my greatest problem. That's always my greatest problem. And that's what Paul is expressing. The weight of glory is everything. Turn your lives to Him. Believe in Jesus with all of your heart. Turn away from those sins. Confess them before your God. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Here is Jesus pleading with you and saying, I've come to solve your biggest life problem. Will you allow Him to fix it? Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?